Well, dear listener, thank you for uh, hmm. listening to the podcast while we were gone. Yeah. But we're back. We're back. We're back, baby. Back in action. 2021. Here we are. Oh, geez. I know, right? Can you believe it? Another year, another, we had a whole... another beer. <laughs> Not on the premise. No, that's another podcast, Chad. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so we're back. Yeah, it's 2021, and we have got a lot of exciting interviews planned for this year. And first of all, I'd like to mention, for those of you who know, the premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival. Gosh, I hope you know by now. I would think so. Right? I mean, unless, you, unless, of course, you skip at the beginning Possibly the middle and the end. Which is credits. entirely possible and I wouldn't blame you. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, I've only worked hours, <laughs> well, minutes on that theme song. That's true. People that, that's, should listen to it. That's my you. blood, sweat, and tears right there. It's a really good theme song. You're good. <laughs> I, I love it. All right. All right. So, so, but here's the deal. We have our virtual event planned for 2021. Two days of programming. They're two weeks apart on July 17th and july 31st so check out the website at san diego writers festival.com there you go all right well we're so glad you're back i'm excited about this year we have a lot happening and today we are sharing an interview that we recorded for warwick's and as you know we work with warwick's in la jolla they are a local boutique bookstore we love to support local. Ooh, boutique even. Yeah, it's such a great bookstore. If you haven't gone in and checked it out, please do. If you're visiting San Diego, if you're out of, if you're from out of town, they just. Are if such you're a, from out of town, why are you traveling? Honestly, well, or that's your true. mask. Hey, it's COVID is <laughs> on the, its way out. Oh, hopefully. We're hoping. We're hoping. I saw some numbers went down. Mm-hmm. And yeah, everyone's getting vaccines except us. Everyone but us, because we never leave our house or this podcast room. Right. <laughs> this is what we do. We just sit here and podcast all day, every day for you, dear listener. So, yeah, I, we've got another one coming up here in a couple couple seconds. Uh, this is a Warwick's author, and I hope you'll sit back and enjoy it. And don't skip the ads. Don't skip the ads. I'm kidding. There are no ads. We only have like the outro. and. Well, our ads are good, though. It's Warwick's, you know, support local. Again, the San Diego Writers Festival, which, you know, the whole point of the premise is to bring industry leaders and book authors and publishing experts to you. So yeah, the ads are important. Yeah. San Diego Writers Festival.com. All right. Until next time, enjoy this interview. Well, welcome. Claire, it is an honor to talk about this book. It is gorgeous. I Loved it. I want to read it again and again, actually. Oh, thank you so, so good. Much. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. So before we start talking about it, I do want to tell people a little bit about you. So Claire Beam's novel, The Illness Lesson, New York Times Editor's Choice, a best book of 2020. This was released in hardcover in February of 2020. And um, best book of 2020 by Esquire and Bustle. And a best book of February by Time, O Magazine, and Entertainment Week Weekly, among other accolades. Her story collection, which I'm going to read next, We Show What We Have Learned, was published in 2016 when the Bard Fiction Prize was longlisted for the Story Prize and was a Kirkus Best Debut of 2016, as well as a finalist for the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize 
and the New York Public Library's Young Lions Fiction Award and the Shirley Jackson Award. So I can't wait to read that one too. After teaching high school English for six years in Falmouth, Massachusetts, which this book takes place in Massachusetts, she moved to Pittsburgh where you now live with your husband and two young children. And you taught creative writing as well for Carnegie Mellon University and St. Vincent College, right? Yep. You're, you've been steeped in writing. <laughs> I wanted, there's a couple quotes on the back of the book and on your website that have been said about this book. And I want to read them for our viewers and our listeners because they really capture this book. And I was like, wow, really well said. So here we go. Beams has somehow crafted a tale that feels like both classical ghost story and a modern and very timely scream of female outrage, a masterpiece, says Elizabeth Gilbert. This is Elcott meets Shirley Jackson with a splash of Margaret Atwood, says the Washington Post. Couldn't agree more. And Oprah says seething with feminine fury. <laughs> wow. Like, I felt... I felt that when I was reading this book, I felt all of those thoughts that they put into those wonderful endorsements for your book. So congratulations on writing a masterpiece. It certainly is. Um, the illness lesson is gorgeous. So, so tell us, how did the idea for this story come to you? Well, so we were living in Massachusetts um, and I was sort of at the tail end of my six years of teaching. So I think I had this idea that I might like to write about a school. Um, my story collection has a lot of, um, I, I find schools and classrooms really sort of fruitful fictional settings in general. And so, and I was thinking that in terms of something that could sort of carry the weight of a novel that, that a school and sort of a school year could provide kind of a nice structure. Um, but then I also, um, I grew up reading Little Women kind of over and over again. As yeah. Maybe, like, between the ages of like 10 and 12, I was kind of obsessed with it. Um, huh. And we lived not too far in Massachusetts from um, a place called Fruitlands, which is the site of a failed um, utopian commune that Bronson Alcott, father of Louisa May Alcott, attempted to start um, when Ooh. the girls were small. Um, and so Juicy. <laughs> yeah, he was a fascinating guy. He um, he had all these kind of wonderful, kind of forward-thinking ideas about education and um, about mm. kind of the equality of all kind of human souls. But he also, so you know, the idea was they were all going to live together in harmony in this in this place, and kind of everyone would be equal. But they were also they were trying to be fruitarians, and no one really knew how to do that. So they all kind of almost starved and almost froze to death, and no one knew how to farm. Um, and so <laughs> the commune didn't. It was it was sort of. Um, it had a lot of wonderful ideas and not a lot of wonderful practical skills to kind of back those ideas up. And so, um, and the Fruitland site is this museum now where you can see the original farmhouse that they all tried to live in and kind of this very sort of traditional New England landscape, like these rolling green hills. And I was sort of wandering around there and I just, I had this sort of mental um, kind of thought experiment of what it might be like to see sort of like, because you know, I was looking at all the sort of normal New England wildlife kind of flying around and, and buzzing in the grass and all of that. Um, and what it would be like if there were a, a bird that was just like a little too bright, um, sort of not the, uh. usual, not the usual, usual sort of New England fauna. Um, and sort of, I often start with an image when I'm beginning a new story. And just that that image of this like bright red bird was was interesting to me in the way that I've kind of learned to pay attention to that there's 
something there to kind of dig into and, and, you know, play around with. So that was, that was the beginning. Wow. So Samuel is kind of based on then the father, the Alcott, it sounds like. Very loosely, very, very loosely, which is the kind of historical fiction writer that I am. I mean, I I wanted to feel free to invent these people and play with their pasts. And I made Mm -hmm. Samuel sort of... Bronson he was the Alcott. inspiration. He was an inspiration, yeah. exactly. He, um, I made Samuel kind of more successful as a writer than Bronson Alcott necessarily was. Bronson Alcott was was a very famous sort of personality, and he was in the orbit of Emerson and, and Thoreau and all those guys. But he had a lot of trouble with kind of his own publishing record. <laughs> he just he wrote he kind of overcomplicated everything. So I was sort of blending Bronson Alcott and Emerson, and then just kind of inventing as well. So. so I wonder, so the, the commune that happened in the illness lesson, there's so, a failed commune, sort of a similar thing. Did yeah. originally, did you think, was that the story at first? And then it did it evolve into the current story? Or was yeah, that always I, meant to be sort of backdrop? Yeah, I always knew that there needed to be sort of like a previous failure haunting the new experiment. And I was more interested in writing about the school than in writing on the present stage about the commune. Um, mm-hmm. Although I am, I'm interested in the commune and in what happened there. And there were drafts of the illness lesson that kind of showed a little more of that or revealed a little more about what had happened um, kind of as part of the present drama. Um, but I think that what's most important about Her- Birch Hill in the illness lesson is really the sense of this past failure kind of hanging over everything. Um, yeah. Thinking very yeah. differently over Samuel and over Caroline, who is our main character. And their last name, so Samuel is the father and Caroline yes. is his daughter and they're starting the school. And their last name is Hood, yes. which I thought was kind of a nod to the bird, I presume, you know, a hooded bird. Is, yeah, I, I thought about that. I also just wanted something that had the right sound, um, which is often kind of where I'm, yeah, images and sort of the, the sounds of names and sort of sentences is, you know, kind of um, where things often start for me. So I think after I'd come up with Hood and like the way that it sounded, I, there were reasons why I kept it. Um, but I, I can't pretend that I sort of like sat down and mapped out all the symbolism of it. <laughs> <to start. laughs> a lot of times it kind of does just sort of happen. Like it feels like it was just happen chance, but maybe it's deeper than we realize, you know, based yeah, on there's a lot of levels of the brain working when we're writing. And a lot of them are not mm-hmm. kind of under, this makes me sound so mystical and I'm really not, but I, but I do think that there's, um, <laughs> I think there's, there's stuff at work when you're writing that is not totally under your conscious control. That's like a little bit attached to the part of your brain that dreams. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, oh, wait, that really works. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And I think editors see those connections, too, that maybe we don't see and help us kind of flesh them out. Did did that happen? Was that your experience with this? Um, So certainly my editor was was well and various editors at various points, you know, in various forms, my my readers and my agent and then my eventual editor, everyone helped with various things in the book. I think that by the time my editor had it, it was pretty I mean, there, there were sort of pacing. Ready. Well, no, I don't know if it was good, but it was, and there were pacing things to fix, but there were not mm-hmm. like sort of coming into itself things to fix, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. Um, and I tend to be a writer who really wants, like, before I let anybody else in there, I want to have taken it. I want to really know what it is for myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which doesn't mean that there's not a ton to fix still, but, but sort of your, you you know what what you're trying to turn it into at least I feel like if mm-hmm. I don't know sometimes showing did it change like what'd you say yeah, I mean did it change like oh, from yes. and I I heard that it took you seven years to write this yes. book is that right 
so there's a like long time children in there too and another book and yeah but so but yes um it took seven years well um so I had written a draft of this book in about two years, but it was a draft of the book that did an entirely different plot thing in the last sort of oh. third than it does. Okay. Um, and it was oh. a plot thing that I kind of suspected was not right, but that I it sort of out of panic. So, so there's a, there's a sort of sinister medical treatment in the book that I knew once I came across it um, in research kind of needed to be in there. Um, but I really didn't want to write it and didn't want to put it in there. So I sort of halfway did. And then I sent our main character off on a road trip instead of sort of dealing with what I had done. <laughs> and so, and the main sort of um, reveal of the book came in sort of this, she went to find this friend of her dead mother's on this road trip. And then the, the friend sort of reveals all this information about the mother's life in dialogue. Like it's like that end of a sort of not so good mystery where the killer has been caught and sits down and like reveals everything about the story. Yeah. In dialogue. So I kind of knew yeah. it. When I was ready. I was like, this is not a good sign. Like all this stuff that this character is saying for like pages and pages happened 25 years ago and no one cares. <laughs> you know. So, um, so I, I sort of, and I had a draft of the book that did that for a long time while I was having my second child and publishing my story collection. Um, and then right before we sold the book, I sat down and in just a, a few months, like really wrote the ending of the book that needed to be there. So, wow. So you you started this book before you started your first book? Um, okay. Well, so, yeah. So there was a there's there is a drawer novel that predates either mm. of them. Um, OK, it's still in the drawer. It, it's still in the drawer and it will always be in the drawer. It was it was valuable in terms of what it taught me. It was not it would it would not be a valuable reading experience for anyone else. So um, so it sort of I was writing the stories that made up my first book kind of as I was writing that novel. Um, and mm -hmm. then I began this novel kind of while we were taking a year to see if we could get somebody to buy the drawer novel. And during that year, I was also pregnant with my first child. Um, and so that was all, it just, all of that took a long time. So, and then I kind of, I put this novel, this novel sort of had long rest periods while I was mostly writing stories or editing my first book or having a second baby <laughs> or teaching. Um, so uh, I think that, but I think during those rest periods, I was also probably on some level kind of turning it over in my head and figuring out mm -hmm. why, why the version of it that existed really didn't work. Um, and this was all, this was a version, like my, my original vision for this book was that it was gonna be set at three different historical time periods in the life of this oh, wow. There was gonna be this section wow oldest section and then there was going to be one in like the 1940s I think and then a present day section all of them kind of tied together by the reappearance of these strange birds um mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. I sort of realized a couple of months into trying to write that book um that I was really only interested in the oldest section also there was no way this school was going to continue past this oldest mm -hmm. section and um that if I tried to do what my <laughs> was going to be like a 700 page book and I was going to be like 60 years old when I finished writing it because I had these two small children and you know teaching to do mm -hmm. Um, life and so so I streamlined um, and then still kind of went off went off the rails so well it came together beautifully I mean oh, this book you. is so beautiful and you know you can't help like as a reader to think did it just like how did this author bring this all together and I just wonder how much torture you went through like pulling it all together and creating this beautiful seamless you know 
it appears to be a seamlessly written book. Thank you. But I want to go back to this topic of mass hysteria, which yeah. which happens in in the book, um, which is. So in the Ill illness lesson, there's like a malady of sorts that happens to these girls and, you know, a mass hysteria, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to know, like at one point, because you just said like that wasn't your intention in the beginning and you did some research. Right. Can you tell us like how you discovered this and how you thought this is going to work in my book and just kind of yeah. bring us into that? Piece well, it. so when I started the book, I had um, I had the birds and I had this idea of a girl's school and I wanted the girl's school to be um, very well intentioned to sort of be founded on these beautiful ideas. But for there to be problems, you know, once these ideas were sort of once attempts were made to implement these ideas. Um, and, and I think I did not know what the problems would be when I started writing, but I did figure out pretty quickly that um that the problems were going to come in some way from the girls' bodies, because I think that that's what mm -hmm. there is no space for in this school. So Samuel has this mm -hmm. idea. Um, I mean, really, I think Samuel's main drive is to sort of reassert his crumbling fame. Um, you know, he has totally. kind of outlived his, I mean, he's, his, his fame is built on beautiful things, but so he's this famous essayist who is now kind of outliving his, his prime. Um, while his his adult daughter kind of tends these you know embers of the of, you know his, of his once full flaming career, um, and so he's <laughs> one more grand experiment to kind of reassert himself, and so he's decided to to sort of start this school as this experiment that will show to the world that girls can do the things that boys can do, which is a great thing to try to show the world. It's just that he has not really. Um, thought about, and this is the thing that Caroline is so aware of the whole time, is that there's not really been much thought about how this experiment is going to fit into the broader world and mm. what the lack of fit might do to these girls who are sort of in the, right. um, at the crux of what he's trying to do. And so I, um, I wanted him to be the sort of the sort of thinker who's thinking about ideas and not about the sort of physical reality in front of him. And, and I mm -hmm. thought that therefore it made a lot of sense that the trouble should come from the physical reality that he just won't look at, that he is just the whole time has been kind of turning away from. Yeah. Um, and so once I figured that out, you know, I knew I didn't want them to catch like a simple, you know, I didn't want there to be like a poisoned well or something that would like, that would cause, I, I knew that the, the problem <laughs> needed to somehow be a symptom of, of the kind of impossible situation that these girls have been put in, um, where mm -hmm. they're being sort of told that the world is theirs, but they're not really being shown how to inhabit that world in any realistic way. Um, yeah. And then I started sort of reading about ways that that sort of psychological stress can manifest. And the, there are throughout history, these fascinating little episodes where groups of often young women, often adolescent girls, um, kind of start having these inexplicable symptoms, seemingly inexplicable symptoms. And, and it tends to be kind of, you know, contagious in a certain way. There tends to be a sort of group that, that can sort of manifest these symptoms at the same time. And there was, I mean, as recently as like 2011 around Rye, New York, there was a cluster of adolescent high school girls who just started sort of twitching and having all of these Really? symptoms. And there was a lot of investigation about like, is it a chemical? Is it Lyme disease? And there's, you know, there've yeah. been a lot of sort of um, explanations for it since, but that there's, there's something that there's something about the ways in which the, the brain can affect the body um, that, that can show up in these kinds of fascinating little clusters sort of through history. Yeah. 
about that the isolation of these girls and the kind of pressure of their situation and the presence of this one ringleader who is not consciously faking it, but who is sort of ready, ready to have an experience in some way um, would, yeah. would, you know, set things up for that. You know, I, I love how these girls like they're there to kind of cause trouble. But in such an innocent way that I can see where Little Women was sort of an inspiration for how much trouble yeah. they cause. And and Eliza is our ringleader troublemaker, but yet she's still so good. Like we want her to cause trouble and we want her to question things. And it must have been so much fun, like writing her character, because um, yeah. at her root, you know, I think like we want her to succeed, even though she's the one who's really causing all these problems. Yeah. And I think Caroline, our main character, wants her to succeed, even though she's causing all these troubles. Totally. Caroline wants, yeah. Feels very afraid of her and, and loves her in a certain way, even though, mm -hmm. you know, she also finds Eliza irritating and off-putting and kind of wishes she wasn't there and is afraid of her. But but yeah. Is, does find herself sort of pulling for her and rooting for her too. And I think um, the book got a lot better once I realized that I really loved Eliza. There were, there were versions <laughs> of the book where she was kind of a villainess, you know, cause I, yeah. think when you're, I think when you're, when you're sort of looking for ways to propel yourself through a large story, like you're, you're just looking for friction and you're looking for those things that will kind of keep making things worse for your character, for your main character. And so I tend to find that in early drafts, the characters who are sort of at odds with my main character in various ways, I tend to really be, I tend to not mean? allow myself to sort of reveal their full humanity at first. So, and the book, the book gets better once I realize why I love those people too. Um, so that happened with Eliza in this book and with Sophia in this book, I think. Um, I was gonna ask that. Yeah. And that's interesting, like in terms of just like the process of writing, like it, it's like, you know, you can't see the humanity yet because you have to dig yeah. deep into the thing that's going to bring that that plot forward. And we have right. to have those evil characters. Right. So that's right. I love that. <laughs> well, OK, so, yeah, that's awesome. I, I, when I was reading, I was like, oh, my gosh, how did she develop such like beautifully evil characters, but they're not, you know, and, and that's one of the things that I really liked about this book is really our only villain is Dr. Yeah. Hawkins. Yeah. And he's and, not interested in developing his humanity. Um, I wanted him to just be, I mean, I think given what was going to happen, um, I, I don't think he deserves that, <laughs> you know, but I think that totally. to me, the book, um, the interesting question of the book is not really why it's, it, I, I think the, the villainy of Samuel is, is more interesting to me sort of narratively because Hawkins is really only mm. possible in the damage that he does to these girls because Samuel kind of invites him in. Um, and I think, yeah. so that's really where the kind of like narrative heart of the book is, is with the, the sort of well-intentioned people who end up doing all this damage. Um, Hawkins is not well-intentioned. <laughs> so yeah. And isn't that exactly how it is in life, you know, as women yeah. who are dealing with, you know, um, just feminism in general, when, when things happen to women, bad things happen to women, someone allowed that to happen. If people were to step up yeah. and say something, then we wouldn't have the problems we have. Right. And so Samuel yeah. unknowingly 
trying to do good and trying to give these women, these young women, this education so they can go out into the world and do good. But he's the he really is the core problem for both right. Caroline and the women. Right. Well, and I think so to me, perfect. Sort of, oh, sorry. What were you going to say? <laughs> I said so perfect. Oh, so thank perfect. you. Thank you. I also think that he the, the issue with the sort of philosophical system that he's trying to give to them is that ultimately he's at the head of it. So you know, he mm-hmm. wants to give them this sort of like beautiful moral guidance as they move through the world. And they're supposed to trust themselves as sort of their own you know, to steer their own path, except if he disagrees with them and then they're supposed to trust him. And so I think I'm interested in the sort of inherent danger of that too, you know, a moral system where you're supposed to listen to yourself always, except if this one unquestionable authority tells, you know, because he, when he tells them that Dr. Hawkins is going to do this, he set up a system in which they are not really allowed to question that exactly, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so perfect, so beautifully written. And the way that the story unfolds, it, 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 it's such a great journey. I loved it so much. I hope I hope pe- lots of people read this book. Oh, it's so okay. timely and it's modern and yet it's, it's, you know, in 1870. And I wanted to ask you about the language. Um, you really capture the time, you know, in just the turn of phrases, and yet somehow it feels modern and timeless. Can you speak to, is that, is that just your writing voice or did you really have to concentrate on putting us in 1870? So, um, I think that what you're talking about is important to me when I write historically, which I don't always. Um, so I think depending on the story, I. I hope that the sound of things sort of changes, but but I do think I, I read so many books from around this time growing up that I think that there is a way in which this sound is sort of, um, I feel sort of steeped in it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I don't think, I, I, I think I probably wouldn't have been drawn to write about this time period if that weren't true. Like if, if the sound of it didn't feel sort of natural um, and, I, I want I also want to be clear that like I I never wanted it to seem like I was writing a book like from within 1871 because because I just feel like you know what's they, they wrote books then we don't need me to pretend that I'm you know a writer from 1871 writing this book but I think that um so I think the way I think about it is you want a certain sort of flavor or sound of the time and you don't want things to be outright wrong but you also um I get a little impatient, just personal taste wise with, um, with historical fiction that like, you know, goes on for pages and pages about like the, the fabric that the clothes are made. Totally. Totally. The contents of the dinner plate, because I just think the characters of those times wouldn't have been that interested in those things. You know, they were just their lives. And so I, I'm usually, I think drawn to write about the past because it allows sort of a concentrated, investigation of some issue that's interesting to us or to me still today. Um, yeah. I don't think I'm always consciously aware of that when I start, but I think, you know, this is a book that's about modern feminism in some ways. Right. Right. But that the sort of the, the look backward allows a sort of more concentrated, um, mm-hmm. a more concentrated version of that dilemma in some ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. That I, you know, I get a certain amount of leeway just by also being the kind of writer who invents weird species of birds whenever I want to. Totally. Yeah. There's a little surrealism always running through as well. And And I loved that. Oh, yeah. Well, and I think that's what made it like you could, this book could be in 1870 or it can, it could, 
being 200 years into the future. I mean, honestly, like it's written in such a way that it really is timeless. I think the questions that you bring up are timeless. I think our humanity and how we treat each other is pretty timeless. So that was really well done. And that's why when the comparison to, you know, Atwood meets Alcott, I was like, oh, yes. Thank you. That's exactly what this <laughs> book is. I, I did really love that one. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, did your heart just go, Thank yeah. You. <laughs> yeah. Those are some nice names. <laughs> so. Yeah. And Oprah thinks it's marvelous. I mean, how is how has it been? I mean, you've gotten a lot of acclaim for this book. So how's how has that felt being a high school English teacher who has always I assume you've always wanted to write and be yeah. a writer and yeah. you've written a masterpiece. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think the thing is that you know, we, I don't maybe other writers are different. I don't think writers ever feel that we've written a masterpiece necessarily. You know? But if but someone I mean, says feel, you do, well, there's thanks. something I, to that. Yeah, I mean, I feel proud of this book and I think I would not have published it if I did not feel proud of it. But it is um, you just I think never know what what is going to happen when the book is yours for so long and it is your mm -hmm. thing only to play with for years. And that is something that I love so much about writing. I mean, I think it's just it is the perfect job for a control freak um, for for many, many years because you just you have total authority over what happens to this entire world that you're building. I mean, you can make anything happen to these people um, and you can get rid of them entirely and bring in new ones. And just, you know, it's, it's, um, it's like playing when you're a kid. I mean, in its best moments, it's just this yeah. free world, but then publishing is not that right. I mean, at the point where you're publishing it, which is always the point. Um, I mean, I think for for writers who are writing novels, we know that we're not writing journals. You know, these are, these are, things that we we mean to reach readers who are not ourselves eventually. Um, but I think at the point where you are done and you're done editing and you're done with all, and it, you know, it's, it's going to go out in the world. It, it gets a face, it gets a cover, it gets a whole, it gets a whole way of being discussed that is, you know, not necessarily the, the words you use to discuss it in your own head. Um, and, and many of the words that are used to discuss it are beautiful, you know, and are things that you never would have dared to think to yourself, you know, but just, you know, it's, it's putting a face on something that has only had a face in your own head for a lot of years. Um, and so I think, you know, there's something always, I think just inherently strange and wonderful about listening to readers talk about your book. Like it's a real book. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, oh, it's a book. Well, speaking of a real book that I'm holding here in my hands, <laughs> let's talk about this cover. Uh, gorgeous cover. So, um, so this, the cover, um, the, the artist who, the, there's an embroidery artist named Michelle Kingdom who did the actual um, embroidery here. Mm. Um, and the wonderful cover designer at Doubleday um, found her and sent me to her website. And, and the whole, every single piece of art was like something out of, I mean, this, basically this existed already, except there were two women um, and the skirts were a little shorter, um, but there were literally red birds in a piece of art that existed on wow. the end like, I mean, it was, it, I had never seen it. It was not done originally in response to my book. Then they commissioned her to do one with just one woman in a, in a longer skirt and, you know, things that would fit just slightly, slightly sort of better for the book. But, um, so I just, I was so ecstatic when, 
when I saw it, because I think it's just, it's exactly the right. I think the words I kept using when I was talking about what the cover should look like to sort of, to the, to the wonderful people at Doubleday was that it should be sort of creepy, beautiful. Um, yeah. It should be, yeah. it should be pretty, but it should not be just pretty. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I wanted mm-hmm. something that would unsettle. Eerie. It's unsettling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just the, the fact that it is embroidery kind of works so well with the time period and with the whole, um, the questions of sort of the, the women in the book and what their world mm-hmm. is and, you know, yeah. so, so yeah, I, I really, I lucked out. <laughs> Covers are strange and it's a strange, um, it's like I said, it's, it's putting a face on your thing. Um, and you don't really, you don't really have much say. I, I got to ask, do you have the original commissioned art? So yes, um, as like sort of my favorite present ever, my parents and my husband <laughs> bought it for me. Um, wow. So it's in my living room and I just, I love it so much. Um, That's awesome. So, yeah. Jennifer, you, so can, cool. you can keep asking questions. I've tried, I had to jump in though when we're talking about the I'm cover. so glad you did. Because <laughs> yeah. the, the arms, like like the affliction, you know what I mean? It yeah. kind of, yeah. the way, well, and, and just the stitches. On you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, what it and looks it sounds like, like a, I mean, I haven't seen the paperback yet, so I'm so excited to see. But like on the hardcover, it's like you can feel the there's like a tactile. I don't know. I just right. I could not love it more. Mm-hmm. No, um, everything I about think it. They would have let me if I had not liked what they had come up with. I do think they would have. I think you. Mm. I mean, I don't. I think there's limits to the say that you get, but they wouldn't have made me have a cover that I hated. I know they wouldn't. That have. you hated. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that happens, but I don't think they would have done that to me. Double Day is just, they, they have a very special place in my heart. I love they, everybody yeah. there. They're a great team. That's awesome. They are, they are fantastic. I didn't mean, so if you have more questions, Jennifer, you go. Well, let's ask your, yeah, I would love to know about your writing process. Like, I know that you have two young children sure and <laughs> and that you've been mom and teacher to two young, four and seven. Is that right? Four and eight? Yeah. yeah the seven-year-old is about to turn eight in like a couple okay. of days. Um, so. Oh, cool. Well, happy birthday to her. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how do you find time to write? What is your process? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, I, the, the thing that I say to people who are sort of about to become parents who, who are writers already is that like, it, I don't really know anyone, regardless of their family situation, who's like, I have all the time to write that I need. You know, I mean, I think there's it's just difficult always to fit it into real life. And I think that kids are a different kind of impinging on your time um, in that they're they're sort of like more literally vocal than some, than some kinds of impingement might be. But they're also um you just figure out a structure that will work for your process. So I have found that it's better for me, especially if I'm writing a novel, if I can touch the work more days than not. So that doesn't mean I need like five hours, um, but it is better if I sort of, you know, even if it's just like half an hour or an hour, even if it's just to do one very clearly defined task, it just, if I, if I touch it that day, it kind of keeps me in that world. And I think that part of the reason this book took seven years is that it's it's easier to fit in short stories with small children just simply because you don't have to keep up that dailiness for much longer than a couple of weeks to get a first draft. And then they need all this cooking time anyway, where you need to put them away to understand why they don't work yet and what you need to do to them. Novels need that too, but you have to get to the end first. And that just takes a long time with a novel. And I found that... Um, 
you know, I kept having all these for various sort of life reasons and publishing the other book. Like there were periods where I just was away from the illness lesson for a long time. And so I would have to spend, you know, several weeks just getting under the thing again, you know, rereading it all and, you know, kind of trying to remember what the mechanics of the world were and just what the feeling of being in the world was, was, and just to feel like I was really inside it again. Um, so I found that my process works better when I don't have that um, a lot. Yeah. When I reach really the end of a draft before there is that rest time um, or too much of that rest time. Um, beyond that, it's just, it's what I, it's what I can fit where I can fit it. You know, I think um, once I was pretty kind of particular and kind of precious about what I needed to write well. Um, you know, I would, I would need to read something really inspiring for maybe 40 minutes before I would even attempt to write. And then I would write for a while and then I need to walk to like clear my head and then I read again. And then, and now it's just, I mean, I remember when my older daughter went to daycare for the first time, she went for like two hours that morning and I, I got so much done. <laughs> so it probably wasn't the first day. It was probably like, but I just, that felt like, you know, I, I would just drop her off and come home and get to work. Just write. Um, yeah. So. Do you have, like, do you keep like a timeline or is there a way that you organize your characters and like keep everything straight? I, I do things like that at various points in the process. I try not to outline too rigorously too early because um, I think I did that a lot early on as a writer in ways that kind of stifled all the life of the project. And I think that every writer is different with this, but I, mm. I, I'm much happier when I'm fully in control of things. And so given, if I let that controlling part of my brain be in charge, it will control the life right out of the book. It really <laughs> will. And so I think I need the part of my brain that does the weird things that, that don't always, or even most of the time work, but that without them, there's really just no life in, in the mm. project. I need that part to be in charge for sort of the first draft to, to whatever extent I can manage it. Um, I think, especially with a novel, you do start to see where you think you're headed. Um, but I try not to, I try not to hold it too, too tightly, too early. Um, and then later you can, you can plan all you want. Um, and that's the part that actually, that, that I love, you know, where you've printed the thing off and you're, you're fixing it, but really you're actually making it, you're, you're writing most of the words that are going to be in the book, but somehow it doesn't feel as scary because you, you have all these pages that come after, <laughs> you know, even if you're going to get, yeah. Do you have a favorite novelist or a favorite writer? Who oh, you read? I have so many. Um, I'm three. Always, I mean, so I, I love Kelly Link. I love Karen Russell. Um, I'm always returning to Virginia Woolf. I think Alice Monroe is amazing mm. um, and kind of far stranger than her, than my sense of her was before I had really spent a lot of time with her. Um, uh, oh, man, they're, they're just, yeah. Um, I, I think, um, let's see, who else do I want to say? Um, Helen Oyeyemi, I think, is incredible. Mm. She's so good. Isn't she so good? Oh. It's so like you get to the end of the story and you're like, wait, what? Oh <laughs> yeah. man. Well, uh, even through even starting it though, I mean, she just she just twists your brain, and I love that. Totally. Yeah, but in this that. way yeah. where having the question is so interesting. I don't know. Um, no. So yeah, so there there are many favorites. I would have a hard time choosing one, but those are some. What was her whitest for witching? Is that the one? Yes. Yes. Oh, right. That's so. one of my favorites. I know. I know. So great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, okay. we've got thank some questions. You yeah. So much, Claire. Yeah. Well, this has just so been much. awesome. This was such I a can't, 
Such a pleasure to read it. Yeah, I can't wait to hear the rest of the questions from our audience. Yeah, well, we've got we've got a um, we've got a friend, Andy Rowe. Do you, Andy? Oh is, yes, yeah. yes. Right. So Andy, Andy used to live in San Diego too. So hi, oh, Andy. Cool. <laughs> so he says hi, Claire. Big congrats on the paperback hi. release and for selling your next novel. Would love to hear more about the new book and what we can expect. And he can't wait to read it. Sure. So the new one, um, and so I should say it's only like maybe a half written at this point. So we mm-hmm. sold the next one as a partial, um, which is something, which is a new experience for me. Um, and I think usually not, you know, an experience that fiction writers have before they already have a relationship with an editor. Um, mm-hmm. So, so the new book is set in the forties at a sort of country manner where a husband and wife doctor team have, they believe discovered a cure for miscarriage, which they are trying out kind of somewhat illicitly on a very small band of patients. And it's in dual point of view between the woman doctor and the sort of most problematic patient. Um, cool. That so you, seem awesome. to, you seem to go to the, um, this the the female anatomy uh well well, and i actually i came across that it's once again there's like a tiny germ of a real historical thing and i was so we 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 went back and forth for a long time with the illness lesson about whether we were going to keep that as the title um and so when we were thinking we might change it i was scouring all kinds of weird medical corners of the internet and i discovered that there was a real drug given to women from i think the 30s through the 70s um that was designed to to prevent recurrent miscarriage. And the idea was that this this husband and wife researcher um, team had discovered that women's bodies kind of radically fluctuate in hormone levels right before a miscarriage occurs. So the idea was that this really strong sort of synthetic estrogen would level everything out. And that was what interested me, was this idea, first of all, the husband and wife researcher team, but this idea that like women just are varying too much and we have to just sort of smooth that out and everything will be better. As it turns out, things were not better. And it turns out they they now refer to this drug as the silent thalidomide. So thalidomide was the drug that in Europe caused like horrible dramatic birth defects in babies. And I think that one was for morning sickness, I wanna say. Um, mm. This drug, it turns out that especially the female Male babies born to the women who were given this drug often, not always, but often have um, have some irregularities in the way that their reproductive, reproductive system works. don't always become apparent until much later on. So yeah. again, I'm not exactly writing about the real historical thing, but I'm right. taking it kind just of that germ, just yeah. that little germ yep. of it in there. I'm sure there'll be a good creepy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing with like reading this. Yeah. It's just like you have this sense of dread coming. It's just like, yeah, yeah, no, there's totally. a garden at the manor yeah. house that like may or may not bring things back to life. So (laughs) So. I love it. And that just must be fun to just like, kind of, I mean, I like, I have a dark, I love reading dark anyways. I mean, but that must be kind of fun too. Cause you have this, like, you know, your kids are normal and everything's normal. Then you get to go into this, like (laughs) this world in your brain. That's It didn't really occur to me that it was all so dark until I published my first book. And then I think people who knew me sort of socially or especially knew me through my children would always, because, you know, they would hear that I wrote and they'd be like, oh, do you, do you write for children? I'd be like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Actually, I think great children's writing is often pretty, pretty dark oh. as well. But, but you know, I think that wasn't what they were thinking. They were thinking like happy, sunny writing for children. And I, I do think there's... um. I don't know. I just think the sorts of questions that I'm interested in just are not, 
they're not sunny questions. <laughs> right. Well, and it makes for, for me, I mean, I, I'm not one that likes the bow. I don't like the happy. Yeah. I like the, the, give me something that's because the world's so screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> give me something gritty and raw. Yeah. yeah. I also just, I don't really, so people often sort of respond to that, you know, this is so sort of dark and unhappy and why, you know, why can't you write something happy? And I guess I don't really know. I feel like happy fiction is challenging just because of the nature of the conflict arc. I mean, I think you right. just you have to propel your reader through the book with trouble. Now, the trouble yeah. can resolve happily. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think the ending of the illness lesson is like entirely no. grim. <laughs> you know? no, 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 no. But you do no, know that you're. Ending. But you do know that you're <laughs> like. Yes. You know, and I love that you didn't want to give Hawkins any, I, I in the conversation when you said, it's like, no, he doesn't need any. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't get any redemption. No, no, nobody's deserving. Yeah. No. Well, and as I was listening and I, you know, you already answered this in the conversation, but I was, you know, curious if the, the whole hysteria of girls going mm-hmm. back to even like the 1600s. And if you had ever yeah. like contemplated that. As, so I know, didn't really contemplate writing about that. I did read some about the Salem witch trials and, you know, right. all, all similar. I mean, again, it's a similar sort of phenomenon where right. things sort of this, this, whatever was happening to their bodies sort of caught. Um, but yeah, I, I have written, I have written one short story that is set in the 1600s. Um, I don't tend to dip quite that far back. And I had a really hard time with the sound of that short story for a lot of years, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, writing these, these versions of it that sounded, it was set during the great plague and there were versions where it sounded like I was trying to sort of like parrot that time. And then there were times when it sounded sort of too modern. And for whatever reason, I think I eventually got the sound to a place where I was happy with it, but I think it would be, um, I think it would be hard for me to sustain that for a whole novel, maybe just because I don't know. I mean, I, I did read a lot of literature set in that, in that era. And when when it's done wrong, it's really bad. It's yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, I, I actually really love Shakespeare to the point where I thought about going to English grad school to study Shakespeare at one point, but I, I wouldn't really know how to write like a Shakespearean era novel. Um, I, I think I could see doing something that far back for something short, but I think yeah. it would be hard for me for something so long. Yeah. Because like when Jennifer was talking about like the cadence and things that, you know, there was just every once in a while, there was a turn of phrase that reminded you that you were in the 1800s. And that I think was the brilliance of it. Oh, Um, totally. Yeah. Yeah, Because really that was that just like, oh yeah, that's, you're right there. But like you said, Jennifer, it's a very modern you know, story in what's being told Mm -hmm. too. So. Well, and I love it when that's done with Shakespeare too. Right. You know, like when, when, when it, a director takes a Shakespearean and places it well into the future and you don't know where it is or what time period is. I mean, like, it's so fun when it's, when it's done well, (laughs) when it's done well, the the blue flower is sort of, which is from even, I think a little, I think it's maybe 15 or 1600s. I'm not sure, but it's, it's sort sort of an immediacy to it that I think is just, so, and, and a strangeness. I mean, I think that's often what I'm drawn to as a writer in general. And I think his, when I'm yeah. reaching historically, I'm reaching for that that sort of like little glimmer of, of the strange or the slightly distant from our sort of everyday experience because it just sort of lets me look at it in a way that lets me shape it, if that makes sense. I think mm-hmm. I would have awesome. trouble writing a character who I was consciously aware was too much like myself. I mean, they, they're all us. I mean, that's what we have right. to work. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming out of here. <laughs> yeah, totally. But yeah. I think, um, 
it's helpful to me artistically if I feel like there's a separation um, because it gives me that feeling of sort of license over the, over it to sort of play with it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're just about out of time here. So Jennifer, for everybody watching, um, if they want to find out more about you or follow you somewhere, where should they do that? Well, uh, people can listen to all of the Warwick's interviews we do on The Premise, which you can find on the festival website, sandiegowritersfestival.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at podpremise. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jennifer Grace or visit my website, jenniferthompson.com. Perfect. Um, Warwicks.com. We've got lots of great events that are scheduled. We're scheduling stuff all the way into um, June, July already. So there's wow. lots of good things happening. So, um, yeah. and, and um, we are going to be virtual for quite a while longer. So stick with us though. Good things. And then Claire, how about you? Where should people go to follow you? Um, so I am on Twitter. I think I'm Claire dot beams or Claire beams. I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> Fine. It's just as you start typing. <laughs> I found you very easily. So yeah. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. So I'm findable. Um, I'm on Instagram sort of, I was saying before this, yeah. this started, I don't, I, I feel a little, never sure I'm doing Instagram, right? Not that I'm sure I'm doing any of it. Right. But, um, and I do have a website too, clairebeams.com. Um, oh, I have a question. Yeah. yeah. Clairebeams.com. I went to your website and there's a gorgeous photograph of a whole bunch of literary journals. Are those yours? Is that a bookshelf? No. So your that, house? my website was originally built for me by the wonderful people that look at books, which was my first publisher, okay. the publisher of my story collection in 2016. And they put together that, um, those okay. literary journals. And when they took that picture, I was like, just, is it a problem that I'm not in all of these? Cause I, I mean, I'm in <laughs> some of them, but not all. <laughs> like, are well, we they date back to the seventies? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think that they, that's just something that, um, and they're, they're such a wonderful publishing model because they have, so they're a teaching press. So mm. it's a university press run, run out of UNCW. Um, but then they also, out of the MFA program, there's a class that is, that is sort of devoted to this teaching press. And so you have this kind of little factory of all these MFA students just kind of working on your behalf. So, I mean, my guess That's is that pretty cool. it might have been the publisher, Emily Smith, who did that. She has a real mm. eye. But I also think that all the students, all the MFA students are just always kind of having ideas. Um, and, I loved you know, it. Good, fact, creative, I discovered good a couple, creative brains. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and by the way, it is her Twitter handle is Claire Beams, C-L-A-R-E-B-E-A-M-S. So yeah. Claire Beams. Wrong. <laughs> 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 San Diego Writers Festival.com